Good to see you, Luke. So we might have a few more wandering in while I preach here for Hudson's baptism, so it's okay. It's expected if it happens. Uh, Just be cool with it. Just want to let you know. So as we get going here, um, do you remember a decade ago, can you believe it's been a decade ago, that people were doing this thing called the Ice Bucket Challenge? You remember this like social phenomenon? Uh, People would raise money and awareness for LAS by dumping water on themselves, cold water. And it was a weird social experiment that took place on social media for the whole world to see because all these people that had always told me my whole life, if everyone else jumped off a cliff, would you do it, were now pouring cold water on their heads because someone nominated them on Facebook, right? So I was like, there is no way I am ever going to do this, right? This is just silly and dumb. I'm not going to take part of it. And the youth group students called me a stick in the mud. And I sort of came to the peer pressure and did it myself. And in the 10 years since then, the peer pressure we all seem to be feeling and tempted to cave into now is polarization. We're on week two of our three-week series on politics. Sorry for all the guests who showed up today to hear a sermon on politics. Um, But those of you who were here last week know that we aren't asking the typical questions when we talk about politics. Instead, we're asking questions like this. Questions like, how do we love God in an election year? How do we keep our love for God number one? How do we love our neighbor in an election year, even if we may not agree with them? How do we live out the commands in John 13 to love one another in the church when we might not see eye to eye? on every issue, and how do we keep our citizenship to the kingdom of God above all other kingdoms in this world? So remember, as we go through this series, in recent elections, it's not the Republicans or the Democrats who are losing, it is the church who's losing. And that's the motivation for this series. How do we open up our hearts and our minds to think, we have an issue here in our country, what do we need to do? Because our church should still remain, no matter what is going on uh, politically in the world around us. So, I didn't know how you'd all respond to this series. This should be interesting, right? We'll see how this goes. Well, you all must have had some really good or some really bad conversations with your family about politics uh, during the, the holidays. Because overwhelmingly... The, the thing was, thank you for talking about this. Thank you. We need to be talking about this. Uh, grateful to talk on the subject. In fact, the response has been 100% positive. Thank you. We need to talk about this. Um, it's an issue going on in our world. So with that being said today, um, we are going to move on and we are going to talk about polarization in our country, but more specifically, polarization in our churches. Instead of taking the polar plunge, we seem to be taking the polarized plunge in our culture. And it seems like the water is so cold, we're all just catching our breath. So, for an example, in the uh, 2020 election, I decided, you know what, I'm going to do an experiment, just for fun. And so, um, I would listen to the congregation, and I would go research what people at church we're telling me. Now you have to understand that everyone says or claims that they look at all the media sources out there. So I'd sit there and someone would come up to me and we'd be talking before or after service or at some other event and they'd say, did you hear 
what Joe Biden said. I mean, what a buffoon. He, listen to how he talks. He can't even string a sentence together. I'd say, okay, no, I didn't hear that. And I'd go back and I'd type in what they said and I'd look it up and say, oh, okay, there's where the source was. And it was pretty easy because either Newsmax or Fox News came up when I typed it in. So then I would go talk to someone else at church and uh, they'd, they'd be saying, well, did you hear the inflammatory remarks that Donald Trump made? I just can't believe he would say something so derogatory. I'd say, no, I hadn't heard it. So I type it into the Google machine and sure enough, CNN or MSNBC would have Trump saying something outrageous. But I didn't just stop there. So then I started taking this information and someone would tell me this and I'd tell the other person in church, well, brother or sister so-and-so told me about when I was talking to them about their not preferred candidate or their preferred candidate saying such and such. Did you hear that Biden did or did you hear that Trump did such and such? And they all go, no. He said that? I can't believe you. I, I had no clue he said that. Like, what do you mean? But I thought that you looked up these other sources, right? Well, we know how polarized our media is. We know that oftentimes they don't want to paint the image of their candidate doing something incorrectly. So it left the people completely oblivious. I didn't have one single person when I did this know what the other candidate did. Because the preferred news station or radio station or wherever got their media didn't show the errors um, that were going on with who they may have preferred. So it's easy today not just to live in an echo chamber. We can live in an entirely different world than the people around us. It's crazy. I mean, we, you can see this all over town. We can do this with the people we hang out with our friends, the places we go to eat, the recreational activities we choose to participate in. Sometimes I wonder the reason why we're so polarized is we just don't spend much time around each other. We have different interests and values and beliefs and we just maybe don't even know each other except for three areas in life. Three pesky areas in life where we can't get over this. Family, you just survived the holidays. Work, sorry about that tomorrow. And the one you can opt out of, church. And unfortunately, that's what, you see, what we're seeing too much of. So how do we talk about this? How do we work through this without opting out of it? So I want to give us our case study up front this week. This case study to prove a point. Let's talk about COVID vaccines. Aren't you guys excited? Right? People got some opinions about COVID vaccines. So I want to tell you some experiences I had with COVID vaccines to highlight how that kind of played out a few years ago. So first off, this happened a couple times to me. There were some people who um, were very isolated during the pandemic. I should back up before then. Remember, I should preface that some people thought the COVID vaccine was the savior and some people thought the COVID vaccine was Satan, okay? Let me talk about the first group. Believe heavily in the vaccine. It's happened to me a couple times, like I said. Want to get together. They're like, okay, we have had all this isolation. We're really struggling. In uh, one case, people are like, we know these people are struggling. Will you go meet with them? Or, or uh, in, they're going to invite you over. Would you go meet with them? 
And they didn't just say, hey, are you vaccinated? They said, um, before you come over, I need to see proof of your vaccination status. Like, take a picture. They literally want me to take a picture of the cards and send it to them before we could. It felt like a HIPAA violation to me. Like, like, really? You can't even just take my word for it? Okay, that's one extreme. Let me give you another. On the other end of the spectrum, someone came and talked to me because they wanted to know if I was vaccinated because if me or Aubrey or our family were vaccinated, they did not want to be around me in fear I was going to give them some version of the bird flu that would kill them. Okay? They were sincere in this. It didn't just stop there. They wanted to know your vaccination statuses from me so they could figure out where to sit in this room. And they were really bummed to find out that I don't ask you guys about your vaccination status. And you know what? When you tell me about your vaccination status, I don't chart it. Okay? It's not like I'm putting it together like, yeah, yeah, uh, no. 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 But here's what's really interesting about all of this. Four years later, nobody cares. <laughs> nobody cares, okay? Now, of course, there are people that are always going to be polarized about this. They're always going to have strong opinions about it. But we've moved on. It's something as a past. So why do I bring up this case study? For this one very specific point. What we were willing to divide our churches over. What we were willing to draw lines in the sand and to say to your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you do, do or you don't do this, I am in or I am out. Four years later... It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. What do we divide ourselves over that didn't really matter? It's just a short period of time. So we feel this. We know this. And knowing how all of us, we talk about, and you know, I, with many of you have had conversations about this struggle that we feel, this polarization in our country. What I want to do for just a minute is, can we pray about it? Let's pray about it. God, we come before you first asking for forgiveness. Forgiveness when we lose perspective on so many issues. Forgive us when we let so many other things take the place of our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us this year to be different. May your spirit work in our hearts to unite us regardless of whatever differences we may have. Bring us together as a community this year and help us to love you and love our neighbors well. I pray all this in the name of Jesus, the one who unites us. Pray it off all in his name. Amen. So as we start to get into th things here, I have to address first a big lie. A really big lie we've been telling ourselves in Christian circles in the past few years. And the lie is that this is the most polarized we have ever been as Christians. And this could not be farther from the truth. Um, if you need evidence of this, go read the epistles, okay? You want to see some people who were very polarized and very different? They all believed different things. They came from different nationalities, different worldviews, different languages, different perspectives. And the only thing they really seemed to agree on was that Jesus was Lord. That was the one thing they were following. See, 
We often argue and become polarized over things that have happened for just a few months ago or maybe a few years ago, generally in our country dating back 246 years. The things they were arguing about had been around as biblical commands for thousands of years. Since Abraham, about 2,000 years, they were practicing circumcision and food laws. And suddenly they're sitting together going, are we going to follow this? It's in the Bible. Can we really let this go? I mean, the Jewish Christians are asking the Gentile Christians to take part of their Jewish practices. And surprisingly, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish Christians, they didn't want to go through cosmetic surgery, and they wanted to keep eating bacon. So they carried on. But here's what we need to hear about the early church. Not only did the church survive its polarization, it thrived. It flourished. It was spreading all throughout the world. This message was continuing. And yet they had so much in common in almost, or the, the uh, differences in almost every single way in life. And still, they were able to overcome it. I think there is a lesson there we can learn from them. And so, in fact, in the book of Philemon, Paul's like, you know what? There is a master and there is a slave who worship the same God. It's a little tiny book, one chapter book in the epistles, all about Paul saying in Philemon, you need to set your slave free. No longer are you bound by these humans' constructions. Liberate your slave because he is your brother in Christ. Talk about, let's talk about for a second the church in Corinth. They were having to deal with sex trafficking issues that were all tied together to these weird pagan uh, sexual cult religious practices. Paul had to address a guy sleeping with his mother-in-law in the church in Corinth. Okay, luckily I've never heard of a minister having to address that issue before. And they continued to overcome. So I want to give one example in Paul's writing to the church of Ephesus, Joel, who is out uh, working on moving here this week, brought up this text to me, and I said, you know what, you're going to hear that text again next week. So um, it sounds like this. Ephesians chapter 4, we are going to look at verses 4 and 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to hope when you were the hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Okay, in Churches of Christ, the way we started using this text in the 50s and 60s was to come up and say, well, there's only one, so you better agree with me. We weaponized it, okay? It was a, a way of uh, not just saying absolute truth, but saying, your truth better be my absolute truth. And that's what Joel was talking to me about last Sunday. And he pointed something out very astutely that I want to point, uh, point out to you. This is how it actually starts in the verses before it. Right here we see, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This text isn't a text to, say, to force someone to say, you better believe what I believe. This text is a unity text. It is bringing everyone together to say, this is what unites us. 
These things unite us. We might see things a little differently. We might have different backgrounds, life experiences. We might see the way the world works or how we should solve some of the issues differently. But we are united around this one thing. And so here's the other lie we need to understand. This isn't even the most divided we've been in the restoration movement. You know why I have to call it the restoration movement and not just Churches of Christ? Because this thing happened in our country called the Civil War. Okay? That's where the Christian church, generally the northern churches in the restoration movement, and the Churches of Christ, generally the southern churches, split over this thing called the Civil War where Americans killed almost 600,000 or over 600,000 of each other. So my roommate in college is, uh, was, is this brilliant guy named Dr. Joel Brown. He serves as the president of the Disciples of Christ Historical Society located in Bethany, West Virginia. This is where Alexander Campbell, the founder of the Restoration Movement, started it all. Now, you might recognize his name because he's the nephew of Brian and Kim Brown. And so they alerted me that he was giving a commencement speech in the room where Alexander Campbell used to teach. And so I had to tune in and listen to it, right? It was cool. He was wearing like the cool robes and that kind of thing. But he taught on a subject that wasn't a very cheery one, what you might start saying about my sermons, by the way. He said, you know what? We're going to talk about Alexander Campbell and how he felt after the Civil War. Could you imagine this guy whose entire life's work was to bring Christians together and at the end of his life it ends with the Civil War? He was heartbroken. He was devastated. Everything that he had been working towards went the other direction. Christians were killing each other. And so last week I presented to you how the, the second group after Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell were these guys, David Lipscomb and James A. Harding, and how they believed that Christians should not participate in politics, should not vote, should not hold office. I want to flesh that out a little bit. Why would they possibly think that? Because they had just gone through the Civil War. And they had seen how politics had worked in the heart of Christians and nearly destroyed their country. And so they asked them to move through that thing. They witnessed this. So now that we have this foundation, now that we have this background, now that we've gotten rid of this lie, I want us to look for a second and think about and reflect on Jesus. How does Jesus speak against this polarization? See, I think there's actually a lot of things that Jesus does that we don't often think about. Um, Jesus was addressing political issues that we often talk about as theological issues because they were both, but they were so separated by 2,000 years of time that those political issues have come and gone. So let me give you some examples of how Jesus did this. There was this group of people called the Sadducees. The Sadducees held the power, not just the theological power, but the political power in Israel. And how did Jesus treat the Sadducees? He called them out ruthlessly. Ruthlessly. So much so that they were looking in one point, it says, for a way to arrest him. But they couldn't because Jesus was hanging out in the synagogue in groups. Why couldn't they arrest him there? Political issues. Because 
all the people listening to Jesus would not be okay with it if uh, he, they just arrested him in public. That's why they had to go through this guy called Judas. So there are these other people called the Pharisees. The Pharisees uh, believed in theological reform, but part of it was for political reasons. They thought if we could just add more Jewish practices and laws and rituals, that somehow that would keep people in line and in order. Now, the reason for doing that had to do with um, they didn't want assimilation into Roman culture. It was their primary motivation. They were trying to keep everyone in Israel on track. But Jesus called them out. Jesus called them out because he said, no, 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 more laws aren't going to change things. It's a heart issue. We have to change what's going on in here and then outwardly things will uh, change because of that. So think about this. Think about the time they tried to get Jesus for tax evasion. And Jesus has this brilliant line of give Caesar what is Caesar's and give God what is God's. Um, the biggest thing, the biggest political issue in Jesus' day was Roman occupation. And this is what they were hoping for so much so that a Messiah would come and overthrow Rome. They couldn't understand the perspective of the kingdom of God that Jesus was bringing in. And so there was this practice that these Roman soldiers would need someone to carry physically their, uh, their equipment, their gear. And so you would be required by law to carry it a mile. And Jesus said, no, 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 don't go with them one mile. Go with them two. Or what about when someone attacks you, when they physically smack you? Jesus says to turn the other cheek. Going deeper, I want us to think about how Jesus interacted with individuals because one of the biggest political issues of Jesus' day was the group of people between Israel, between the northern part and the southern part. They were the Samaritans. They would be a group that they considered to be half-breeds. There was a racial component to what was going on there. They half-followed uh, the, the commandments of God. They half-didn't follow those commandments. Um, and so Jesus, what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus takes all these trips through there. He even has a story about the Good Samaritan. In culture, we call it the Good Samaritan. All Samaritans were known to be bad Samaritans right then. How could Jesus call it the Good Samaritan? You think people want to get angry after a sermon. People were really angry after Jesus preached that. But he finds not just a Samaritan, he finds the worst of them. He's been through all these marriages. She's socially an outcast. She's there in the middle of the day at a well. And he chooses to bring the good news of his coming to her, to the Samaritans. Do you know how many Israelites that would have ticked off? Tons of them. Or what about, you know, everything nowadays seems to be in a courtroom, right? The courts seem to have to decide everything. Well, they bring this lady who's caught in the act of adultery. She's not wearing anything, and they throw her at the feet of Jesus. Where's the man? Big question there, right? So what's going on here? How is Jesus going to get out of the law? He's right in the sand, some commandments, and he shows grace in that moment. See, I bring up Jesus because I'm convinced there's two things. That if Jesus were to be here in the flesh today, I think first off, I think we would all be so offended. But we would feel so loved and be so compelled by this vision of the world God was creating that we wouldn't be worried about how offended we are. 
And the second thing I think of is Jesus would often find and interact with people who are polarized by society and Jesus' kingdom would work to restore them. The beggars, the blind, the crippled, the lame. Consider this, the people on the fringes of our culture, the people we find uncomfortable, the people we find annoying or have different views then. What if we had the Christian imagination to serve them in radical ways? Because here's what we're taught to do, right? We're taught to sit and argue. We sit down and we have our debates, right? Oh, we're going to flesh this out and we end up just yelling at each other and then people end up not getting invited to Christmas or Thanksgiving the next year, right? So in order to get our Christian imagination back, I want to debunk a few things about how society says we should talk about politics. Never have I ever heard someone say, you know what, that Facebook argument really won me over. It doesn't work that way, right? Never have I ever heard someone say, well, that letter to the editor just really had a good point. No, those things don't work at all. In recent history, our temptation is to use social media or or these other avenues um, to just pound our point on other people. And spoiler, it's not working very well. So in order to get us through these things, in order to gain a greater appreciation, I need to take you back to my family studies class in grad school. In grad school, we were actually required a bunch of ministry majors to study the brain. And so I'm going to talk about two parts of the brain because it's very helpful in understanding polarizing politics. The first part of our brain that I want to look at is the most amazing part of our brain, the front part, the large spot called the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is responsible for logic, reasoning, critical thinking. When we are contemplating God and spirituality, our prefrontal cortex is what's working. So when we think about God, And we're having these conversations. Things are going really well, but we run into a problem. A problem we have all experienced. Our brain also has this thing called an... uh, uh, Of course, I wouldn't mess it up. Help me with it, Aubrey. Amygdala. 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 We have this thing called an amygdala. Okay, amygdala is responsible for fight or flight responses. Okay, very good thing to have. If you're out walking in the woods and a mountain lion attacks you, it's good to be able to have fight or flight responses. There's just one thing that happens when our amygdala kicks in. It actually takes blood from our prefrontal cortex, sends it to the amygdala and to the rest of our bodies. So when you hear someone in a stressful situation say something like, I'm just not thinking very quickly, or I'm not thinking well. It's because they really aren't. Scientifically, they aren't thinking well. This is why we like to watch sports, right? In the critical moments when everyone's nervous and anxious and their amygdala's kicking in, and there's that one athlete who is calm and cool and collected. We enjoy those kind of things. So how does this work? Well, you can see how it works in our politics. If they can just get us anxious, if they can use words like fight, if they can get our fight or flight to kick in, 
Oh man, politicians can use that against us because we stop thinking and we turn into animals in that moment. When threatened, our amygdala activates our sympathetic system. The blood rushes away from our extremities towards our core because we're preparing for perceived fights. Our hearts need all the bloods, it, blood it can get. Our adrenal glands pump cortisol and adrenaline through our body to prepare for the Im, uh, impending threat. So how do we overcome this? That's what I want to teach you today. There's actually a very scientific and a very biblical way to overcome this. Scientifically, they would say to engage your parasympathetic system. Thinking, think of this as the brakes. One of the main ways we begin to, to get our brakes, to stop our mind, to start thinking again, is slow and steady breathing. Breathing techniques. Now, how's this biblical? If you've been reading the Bible with us and you started your Bible reading in the year, you would have seen in Genesis 1 where God breathed life into man. You would have seen that every time a human breathes, they declare the word, the name of God. Yahweh. Every time we breathe. So this contemplative mission, uh, minister's initiative that I've been part of, that I've been telling you all about, um, is to help ministers be more centered in stressful situations because we find ourselves, believe it or not, in some really stre stressful social situations. So to equip us to overcome those times, they teach us this thing called breath prayers. It is a combination of the Word of God and breathing techniques to overcome critical situations. You want to learn it? It's really simple. You take a breath, and on the inhale, you say part of a scripture. People use all different kinds of scriptures for this. On the exhale, you say the rest of it. Let me give you the most popular example. Inhale, Jesus Christ, Son of God. Exhale, have mercy on me, a sinner. These professors that I'm meeting with that are teaching us these things pray these kind of prayers thousands of times a day. A day to become more centered, to become more grounded, to become less stressed, to be fully engaging all of their brains. So next time you're having that political conversation with someone, maybe you feel that way right now, next time you're watching TV or whatever it may be, Breathe, go on a walk, worship, get away, calm down. Unfortunately, there's one other way that politicians use our amygdala against us. And it's in tribalism. Same area of our brain. We have this, this thing inside of us, the pack mentality, the us versus them kind of thinking. See how many times you hear this when you're listening to uh, the news or you're watching TV when they say them. Why are they saying them? We're all Americans. Why is it them? Well, them, they are. That kicks in your tribalism, which does this same response that I just went through in your mind. So um, we have to get over this idea of a us versus them. Because here's the problem with church. We've walked into church and we've said, oh, they're a Republican, they're a Democrat. They are them. 
No, 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 no. This is us. There is no other us and them. This is us. We are the body of Christ. We can choose to define ourselves in all other ways, but we are to be defined by the people who believe in God. We are Christians. And every week, we're to be reminded of this. Right here. Where does it say in the Bible that we're to take communion alone? Communion is always a community practice. Sometimes I think we need to literally change the seats and look at each other while we take it. Because we remind each other in those moments that we are the body of Christ, that we are in this thing together, that Jesus died for all of us. Because it's really easy during communion to take that cup and to take that bread and just say, Jesus died for me. No, no, no. When we take communion, we say Jesus died for us. Us. We bring it together. But you know what? It doesn't stop there. Because if you go back to Genesis 1, if you're reading this week, it says everyone is created in the image of God. Murray Bowen, the father of uh, this, this studies that we had to study in my family studies systems called the prefrontal cortex, the God goo. He said that this part of our brain is what he argued was what created us in the image of God because we have this large portion in our brain that allows us to reason. So here's my challenge then for us. If we believe everyone's created in the image of God, then in a sense, all of us, Humanity, we're all us. We're all on the same team. We are all to come together in the world and we are to be working to create more of us. The restoration movement is on, not over. We are living out the great commission of creating more disciples. Paul puts it like this. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seeds and heirs according to the promise. So what would it look like in our church to have political conversations and the entire time the person we're talking to feels valued, feels loved, their opinion matters, they're created in the image of God, and they are secure. Is it possible to talk about these hard conversations, not just within church, but within people in our community, and we not attack them, but we love them, and we serve them in radical ways, even if we think their beliefs and their thinking are totally off the rails? See, I've witnessed a few people who can live this out who can stay calm, who can stay collective, who've had the calm, who can have these difficult conversations, and I think they changed the world because of it. I admire those people. And my hope is that we would strive to be those people in 2024. So as we wrap up this sermon, I want to give you two things. I want to give you a challenge, and I want to give you some encouragement. The challenge is this. We love doomsday scenarios, right? My favorite kind of movies are post-apocalyptic movies. As a society, we have these things called doomsday preppers, right? And we love to talk about all these things where how we've saved up all of our stuff and if all these things come in, how we're going to survive. 
And so there's a word I hear mentioned in our towns sometimes, civil war. So let's go there in the doomsday scenario. I know it's extreme, but it must not be too extreme because this March, a movie entitled Civil War, talking about what if we actually went through a civil war this year, is coming to movie theaters. So let's dream about it for a second. If a civil war were to pop out this year, how would we live? Now, typically what we talk about when these things come up is we talk about, oh, some region, we're going to band together, or my family's going to do this, or this group of people, and we have all these different scenarios, but you know what is really interesting to me is the scenario we never talk about is how would we be the church if a civil war popped out? That's what I want you to think about this week. Your lunch conversations, what I want you to meditate on. Seriously, I, I would love to know. This is one of the ideas I've just been meditating on this week. If civil war really started, the worst case scenario, if it started this year, how would we be Christians? All the other things going on, how would we be Christians? How would we love God? How would we love our neighbors? How would we love each other? How would we keep our commitment to the kingdom of God? If the worst thing possible were to happen in our country. That's my challenge for you. Now let me give you some encouragement. I feel like this sermon, uh, more than any on this series, is preaching to the choir. Okay? Um, I think actually this is one of your greatest strengths. Uh, Everything that happened to churches in 2020, the major burnout in ministers because of it, all the conflict, I was so concerned about that in coming here. In fact, it was my biggest question to Parker. Parker, are you leaving because of all these other reasons that all these other ministers are leaving? And how has the church been handling all these different issues, Parker? And Parker assured me, no, everything was going great. It's going really well. And I was like, okay, well, we'll go see. But the best part... The best part was witnessing it. And all of you who have been here since 2020, I don't know of a church that handled the differences of 2020 better than you guys did. I'm sure there's other churches out there. But this is one of the things I brag on you guys about. Because what often happened with a lot of other churches, especially bigger churches, is they aligned by one small group would say, well, we feel this way. And another small group would come over and say, we feel this way. And both sides would come to the elders and they would duke it out. Right? And they'd say, yes, we need to wear a mask. No, we don't need to wear a mask. Well, if you do this. And it was just this incredible like, situation of fighting. And so I want to hear from you guys why you think it wasn't that way. Here, here's my observation of what I saw. Every time these difficult situations, do we pass the trays, do we stay with the, the uh, you know, Robitussin grape juice, what do we do? It was always about people. Well, we could do that, but so-and-so might feel uncomfortable. The... Let me share something from the elders' meetings that I don't think is too confidential. Elders with opposing views would say, yeah, well, we could do this, but I don't want so-and-so to be here. Before we make that decision, let me talk to so-and-so. And we would all come together, and it was hard because everyone was compromising. They weren't fully getting what they want. Do I have to do this? What? This is so weird. <laughs> but you valued each other more. You loved each other more than you loved your politics. And that's my encouragement for you. 
as we go into another election year, Lord, help us. Can we do it again? But I want you to see not only is it doing it again here for our unity, can we help the world? Can we help our corner of the country? Can we be the living example of what it looks like to unify about something more than just polarized politics, to unify around something bigger? And so that's what I want us to reflect on as we close. The author and perfecter of our faith is Jesus. God showed his love for us by sending us Jesus. God didn't leave us as orphans here after Jesus left. He sent this thing called the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us. So I remind you of our greatest act of unity, our pledge, our kingdom decision we have to unite. The good news I have for you today is that you don't have to take a polarized plunge. You don't have to do an ice bucket challenge. The only water that unites us is this water right here behind me. It's in our baptism. And in just a second, Hudson's going to remind us of this fact. That all these things can happen in this world. All these difficult things we might disagree on. But we are the body of Christ. And that's what comes and brings us together. So let me end on these words. Ephesians 4. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all.